Father in heaven, what a mighty, exalted God you are. You are our creator. You are our sustainer, the very giver of life, and the one that continues life. Lord, we thank you for redeeming us. You are indeed our blessed Redeemer. Lord, we want to bring praise and glory to your name because of this. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to your your word, we're reminded that your word is perfect, that your word is sure, that your word is right, that your word is pure, that it is clean, it endures forever, is altogether true and righteous. And Lord, your word is It's a treasure. It is more desirable than gold. It is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And in keeping your word, Father, there is great reward. Lord, may your word do its work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives even this morning. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the hardest things that I have ever had to put together in in my life was our child's crib. When son Jack was born, of course, well, prior to him being born, we went through all the things, and I hope poor Tony has had a better time at putting together their crib, if indeed he had to put it together, than, than, uh, than I had putting together our son's crib. Um, it was one of those deals where we'd gone to the store, we picked it out, and uh, it's cool kind of sleigh-style crib, and, and we get it home, and I start unpacking everything. Now, mind you, I am not one of those typical guys that just takes the instructions and goes, what are the instructions? What do I need these for? Right? Let's face it, if we're going to admit it, there's many of us that, that would do that. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I know that I need the instructions. I am, I'm not that capable to just kind of figure things out on my own. And so I start going through the instructions. But man, this is one of those deals where the instructions are a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. It seemed like it was like 10 generations old and you're squinting to try to figure out what it's saying and it's blurry and all of this. And so you start putting the crib together and you're like, but man, I can't get this wrong. I mean, I can't get it wrong, right? Because it's my child. It's, it's, I mean, it seriously could be my child's life. You know, we've all heard tragic stories of cribs collapsing and what have you. And so I'm, I'm working my way through this and I get to what I think is just about the end. And I look over and there is one part sitting there. And it wasn't like an extra screw. It was like a significant part. And you go, how, how, how is that? That obviously has to fit into this crib somehow. 
And so I thought, huh, maybe there's a way I can kind of, you know, get it in here while it's all. And no, it wasn't one of those deals. It was one of those deals where I literally had to, to, to undo everything and go back about at least halfway in the process to where it could be put and fit in correctly and then get it all, you know, screwed back together and ratcheted down. And my, my point in, in telling you that is, is again, Sometimes, boy, we have to pay attention to the instructions, don't we? Because if we don't follow them the way they should be followed, it could be detrimental. It could be detrimental to to even life. And so this morning, um, the title of the message is Fulfilling the Great Commission. And we will continue on in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. And we will see how the gospel message is something that we need to get right, friends. We need to get right, and we need to follow God's instructions for the gospel, for evangelism, for sharing Christ, whether that's here or behind a pulpit, or whether that's on the streets of Burbank on a box, or whether that's you sitting down for coffee with somebody and being able to share your faith. And, and if we're careless with it, it can have detrimental consequences. Detrimental consequences. So this morning we continue Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and, and really with what a New Testament church should look like, should be doing so far in chapter 1. We have seen Paul along with Silvanus, a.k.a. Silas. Uh, I might switch over and it's just easier and quicker to say, to say Silas, but they're one and the same. And Timothy. Uh, and they have... They've commended the church at Thessalonica for being a church of what? Faith, love, and hope. We find Paul thanking God for God's choice of the Thessalonians for salvation. And then the fact that the church became imitators of not just the apostles, but of course, more importantly, they became imitators of who? The Lord. Part of Paul's commendation of them also centered around the fact that They, quote, received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, end quote. And remember, Paul and company, they were not getting the warmest of receptions as they they were traveling through this second missionary journey of Paul's, uh, having some big difficulties in Philippi, but then now also having some pretty big issues in Thessalonica where they're basically smuggled out of the city under the cover of darkness when it was... (laughs) When they realized it was time to go. After this though. The Thessalonian believers. Became examples. They became examples to all the believers. In Macedonia and Achaia. And Macedonia and Achaia. Were the two main provinces. Composing uh, Greece. In fact because of their good example. It says in the scripture. That the word of the Lord sounded forth. And not just to these two places that are the main provinces of Greece, but also it says in every place their faith toward God has gone forth. So in other words, we recognize here that word is getting out. Not just in the near neighboring city and outskirts of Thessalonica, but beyond. Word is getting out. And it's not even Paul and the apostles who are primarily responsible for that word getting out about the faith of the Thessalonians. Rather, it's, it's because of the fact the scripture tells us that they turned from idols. That would have been a big thing, a big thing that they have turned from idols. They were also 
persecuted for their new faith, and yet still became these amazing Christian examples. And that word was spreading. I mean, there's certainly a lesson there for all of us, isn't it? That even in our example, word gets out. People see and recognize that something is different. And certainly we pray they see it and recognize it in the most positive of ways. Well, then lastly, Paul shares with them these reports that he's been receiving from other people. And the fact that along from turning from their idols to serve a living and true God, they were also anticipating the son's return from heaven, whom he, that is God, raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So these are all the reports that that Paul is receiving from all these different people that have passed through Thessalonica and witnessed this, this incredible, miraculous, salvific change in the hearts of some of these Thessalonian people that would become the church of Thessalonica. Now, as we went through chapter 1 in the last two messages, I encourage you to consider where Calvary Bible Church is at, corporately speaking. And we pose the question, is Calvary Bible Church founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think we would give a whole hearted amen to that but also do we believe that he was raised from the dead jesus and is now sitting in his father's right hand and is coming again to rescue us from the wrath to come amen amen we affirm that is faith love and hope evident in this body i certainly pray that it is that has been my experience have we become imitators of the lord to the point where we have collectively become an example An example in our community and even beyond. And of course, these things can only be true of us as a church if they are true of what? Us as individuals, first and foremost. Well, this morning we we get to press on with chapter 2. So please go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we will will, uh, look at verses 1 to 6 this morning. Let's go ahead and stand. Please, for the reading of God's word, if you are able, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ We might have asserted our authority. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you are, you might keep your bookmark there as you're seated. And and, and turn with me over to Matthew chapter 28, please. Matthew chapter 28 and this great text that I think just most of us are very familiar with. We call it the Great Commission text. 
You might be wondering what this Fulfilling the Great Commission um, title here has to do with the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Well, hopefully after just reading that, you're starting to get some, some inkling. Because this chapter, the whole chapter, is all about how a church can and maybe should fulfill the Great Commission. I say that should because it's coming from certainly Paul, Silas, and Timothy's point of view. It's an interesting text because it's a narrative text in the sense of Paul is relating what happened versus uh, um, a, a section where Paul is is just commanding and saying, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. He's saying, here's what we did. Here's what you did. And And of course, there will be great uh, implications here and applications for us as a church body as well. So let's look here at Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, this familiar text. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. This is the disciples, right? Before he ascended up into heaven, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now what we see in this text that is certainly um, here about making disciples, or, or we could say what is involved with making disciples, meaning followers of Jesus, is that first and foremost, there's that aspect of salvation, right? That in in somebody becoming a disciple of Christ, they first have to be saved by his grace. And then secondly, as they are made disciples, then there's that aspect of what we call sanctification, that they now will be conformed into the image of Christ throughout their life. We not only immediately become this disciple of Christ at our conversion, but then it becomes a lifelong, ongoing pursuit of becoming more like Christ. Going back to chapter 2 then of 1 Thessalonians. Here it's interesting because the text just breaks down beautifully into kind of kind of two primary parts. Uh, the first part here in verses 1 to 12, half of which again we're covering today is all about how Paul and and company brought the gospel to the Thessalonian people and how they received it. And then when we get into verses 13 to 20, the latter half of chapter 2, it really is about then what their lives were like after that. Once they had received the gospel, repented and believed, then what were things like afterwards? Now, in case you're thinking, well, okay, just, yeah, time out. Hold on. Stop. Stop just a minute, pastor, because uh, Pastor Jay, Paul and the other fellas, they were missionaries. They're missionaries. I mean, that was their calling by God to be apostles and to be missionaries. And I'm not a missionary. Oh, no. Oh, no. Beloved, you are certainly called to be a missionary, and it might be more than you even know. The truth is, what we see from Paul and the others is about how they did things in regard to bringing the gospel to the world, which has many, again, implications and applications for us here today. And I would again add, both collectively as a church body, as well as individually, in our own hearts as those who make up the church body. So as we go through verses 1 to 12, you will see five examples of sharing the gospel that you and I would be wise to adopt as we seek to evangelize the lost. And as I, as I said again, um, we will just get through the first three today. 
And the first thing that we see here in our text is this. Sharing the gospel requires boldness. Sharing the gospel requires boldness. Look back at verse 1. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now, first of all, what does Paul mean when he says there, our coming to you was not in vain? Well, just simply that their coming was not for nothing. Because as it turned out, the Thessalonians did receive the word of God. They did repent. They did believe in the gospel. And, and, and who knows? Maybe Paul, maybe Paul had some kind of inside prophetic track on what was going to happen there uh, at, at, in Thessalonica. Um, that he uh, knew what God was going to be doing. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, he acknowledges God's choice of them which we know from other of Paul's writings, indicates that this includes God's choice to remove the blinders and to save them at that specific time. But also the fact that their salvation is something that was predestined before the foundation of the world. They were elected. God foreknew their salvation before the world was made. Now we also know that Paul is being directed by the Holy Spirit in a very specific way, as was indicated back in Acts chapter 16, when in verse 6, Paul tells us that, um, Luke, excuse me, Luke tells us that Paul and his gospel uh, entourage were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word where? In Asia. Then the Spirit also had them bypass Bithynia. In verse 7, head directly to Macedonia, verses 9 to 10, because Paul concluded that God had indeed called them to preach the gospel to the people there. We see that in verse 10. And it would seem fitting that if God directed Paul and company to some of these very specific cities and not other places, he was doing that because he had the, the intention to bring salvation to people in those cities. That these people would hear the gospel, repent and believe. And so here Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that their coming to them was for God's plan of saving them. Even as they had undergone gone suffering and mistreatment in Philippi. And, and, and remember that he and the others were, were dragged before the authorities for driving the spirit out of the woman whose masters were using her as prophet, as a fortune teller back there in Philippi. And once the, the, the spirit, the evil spirit was gone, then guess what? So was the money. The money was gone too. And then the apostles were beaten. They were beaten with rods. They were tossed in jail. Their feet were put in the stocks. God then sent an earthquake to break them out. Um, it became clear that, uh-oh, they're Roman citizens. Oh, we didn't realize that. Uh, now we might be in trouble. This was very dismaying to the magistrates. And so basically they begged Paul and the apostles to leave post-haste. They do. They leave. They arrive at Thessalonica where no doubt word followed closely after all of that in terms of what had occurred in Philippi. That would make sense that the word, there were people running on maybe even up ahead. Oh, you, you gotta, you're not going to believe what happened to these guys. What happened in Philippi? The whole city is turned upside down and blah, 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 blah. 
And as we said in Thessalonica, the Jews then became jealous of them. The Jews there stirred up the city into an uproar. And then believing friends of theirs, Jason and some of the brethren, uh, were tossed into jail even when the authorities couldn't find Paul, Silvanus, or Timothy. And eventually they were released. They sent Paul and the apostles by night to Berea. Get out of here. Move on. Um, you know, I, I was trying to think of like, like uh, one of the worst, you know, case situations for for me that i've experienced regarding persecution and and the gospel and uh, you know i mean I, i'll i'll be honest with you maybe it was a, a thanks and a you know a, a door closing or something i can't say i've been through any of this kind of stuff i can't say that at this point i've had uh i've had uh, uh some of these kinds of certainly not life-threatening persecutions but the point here friends is about the boldness the boldness that they had in sharing the gospel amidst these persecutions. Now, we just, as people, we can find boldness in a variety of ways and places, can't we? And probably one of the most common ways is, is when someone else agrees with us, right? Uh, maybe two, three, four, five more. There's kind of that safety in numbers um, kind of deal that kind of seems to embolden us. We also find boldness simply because maybe we're just a strong-willed person. That's just kind of in our character. It's just kind of in our nature to be just, you know, bold and, and, and outgoing that way. We find boldness sometimes when we're promised something. We're promised something that kind of emboldens us, okay? Or, or uh, we find boldness even when we're threatened, maybe. But where did Paul and his pals find their boldness? Where did they get their boldness from? Well, he says right there in verse 2, in our God. In our God. And this harkens back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Where did the Thessalonians find their steadfast of, steadfastness of hope? It says in verse 3, in our Lord Jesus Christ. They received joy during tribulation, from who? Verse 6, it says the Holy Spirit. And maybe the fact that they turned from idols to serve a living and true God, maybe that had something to do with it. I mean, how much boldness, seriously, can an idol give you? Think about that. How much boldness will the idols in your life give to you? I mean, I, you know, I'm, so I'll think back to just the literal, you know, kind of idol in terms of like some little uh, carving, uh, an animal or a Buddha or a tiki or something. You got that around your, your neck. Can you imagine running into battle with that, thinking this, 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 this idol is going to give you boldness? Or what about hoping and trusting that your, your St. Michael medal, the patron saint of soldiers, will somehow impart boldness to you in the midst of battle? Or would you prefer to have your boldness, friends, come from the one true living God? That is is the only place I find boldness. That is the place we should go for boldness. Think about David. Remember David. The boldness of David as he stood before the giant Goliath and he said this, You come to me with a sword, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. 
And this day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you and I will give your dead bodies to the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hands. Can you imagine The boldness that David had in that moment, where did he get it? No doubt from the Lord. Little David, big Goliath. You think it came from somewhere inside himself? Of course not. It came from God. Now I know Paul is not talking about slaying giants, but he's talking about sharing the gospel. And I know sometimes, friends, it feels like in doing so and sharing our faith, like we're going up against a giant. We kind of want to shrink back and we kind of want to maybe cower a little bit. When we're called to share our faith, we start feeling very small while other people start looking to us as being very big and very scary. And think about it. Who is it that loves it when we feel this way? Who is it that loves seeing that little mmm and slipping in there? Satan. Satan. Turn with me to Ephesians 6, please. Ephesians 6. I think it might be time to remind ourselves who the real enemy is here, friends. It's not the people that we find ourselves in, in lacking boldness for witnessing to. Those people that we sometimes think become big as we become small, they are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. In Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul tells us, who the real enemy is. When he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Friends, parentheses, it's not against other people out there, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And sure, these people that we're so afraid of, yeah, they're okay, they're unbelievers. But along with that, Satan hands us on a silver platter each and every excuse to avoid sharing Christ with them. It's like he's standing there at our side and he's just kind of has this little silver platter. Here's an excuse. Here's an excuse. Here's an excuse. And we just go, oh, okay, thanks, thanks, thanks. Let me just take those excuses. Oh, yeah, they'll think I'm some kind of Jesus freak. Oh, man. They might think I'm weird or strange. They might think I'm intellectually stupid for for believing something so ridiculous. Oh, they're going to tease. They're going to make fun of me. They're going to ostracize me. They're going to hate me. They're going to persecute me. I don't know enough of the gospel to share it. I haven't haven't memorized it yet. I'm I'm not gifted for evangelism. I'm going to embarrass myself. More importantly, maybe I'll embarrass the Lord. 
And of course, the list goes on and the list goes on and the list goes on and the list goes on. What do we need to help with our boldness? Continue in this Ephesians 6 passage. Look at verse 13. Or Paul says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to what? Stand firm. Be bold. Stand in boldness. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, the word of God. I don't know about you, friends, but I might suggest that we just don't put on the armor of God enough. Even as I was preparing this message, I'm like, oh, man, I got to get back to that armor of God more often. Each and every day. Maybe it's one of those passages. That's what we should do. Maybe we should commit to a year here at Calvary Bible Church. Every morning we're going to read this passage. As we get up and proceed with the day. And I know we don't put it on nearly enough when we head into tribulation or persecution or trial or suffering. These are supernatural means, friends, supernatural means for us to stand firm against Satan, for us to be bold against Satan and his forces. This armor should instill in us the boldness we need for sharing Christ. And of course, there's one one last piece of armor that is, it's just so essential, it's integral, especially for evangelizing with boldness. And it's, it's at the end of this armor list. We sometimes stop there and say, ah, that's the end of the armor list. No, no, there's one last piece. I, I kind of call it the not-so-secret weapon because we sometimes forget about it. But there it is. There it is. Look at verse 18, friends. With all prayer and petition, pray at how many times? All times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be praying for each other and pray on my behalf. This is Paul now saying, please pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador and change, that in proclaiming it, I, Paul, may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Should we also not speak boldly as we ought to speak, imitating the apostle, using him as an example? I mean, if this is Paul's prayer for sharing Christ with boldness, shouldn't this be our prayer as well, loved ones? Just flat out pray for boldness for yourself, for each other. Let us all pray for boldness. Secondly, we see back in our, our text of 1 Thessalonians that sharing the gospel requires you to please God rather than people. Sharing the gospel requires you and I to please God rather than people. Look in verse 3. <coughs> excuse me. Paul says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not as pleasing men but God who examines our hearts meaning pleasing God who examines our hearts just first consider that word exhortation is parakalesis 
paraclete. You remember ever hearing that Greek word before? It's the same word used by Jesus when he tells the disciples he's going to send them a helper, right? In the form of the Holy Spirit. Here, though, it's an admonition or encouragement for the purpose of strengthening and establishing the believer in the faith. And of course, this admonition, this encouragement is the gospel of which Paul and the others have been approved by God to be entrusted with it. When Paul says that he and others have been approved, this has the the notion of approving something as to whether it is worthy or not. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, what? The word of truth. It's our Awana verse, right? That's key in being approved. And along with that, then, is, is to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul and the others, um, Silas and Timothy, were approved by God and entrusted with his gospel message. But next is the really important part. That as Paul, Silas, and Timothy are speaking the gospel to the Thessalonians, they are not doing so in a way so as to please men, but rather to be pleasing to God. Now, if we were to say, well, but yeah, but who, who's going to know? Well, of course, God will. God will because it's him that is constantly examining our hearts. Now you say, well, why would that be a concern? Why, why can't the gospel be pleasing to men? Why can't it be pleasing to men? For some of us, we would say, well, it's been very pleasing. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? What a savior. Well, Jesus made it clear. Typically, the gospel divides. The gospel divides. He made it clear that his gospel would not be pleasing to many when he said to his disciples back in Luke 12, 51 and 52, he said, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no. But rather division. Just let me insert here. In Matthew 10, he says, no, to bring a sword. He came to bring a sword. Verse 52 of Luke 12. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. And then he goes on to give that, that um, illustration of you know, uh, the different family members that will be against each other. And, 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 and let me ask you, what do you suppose is most offensive or divisive in regard to the gospel? Just think about it. I, I know many of you know the answer. What is most offensive or divisive? Well, maybe what? You're going to tell me that I can only get to heaven through Jesus Christ? And, and, and the way to do this is to acknowledge that I'm a sinner with the consequences of hell and the lake of fire unless I submit myself to God through his son? Listen, you want to avoid what's offensive and divisive? Then why don't you travel on down to Texas and join, join Joel Osteen's church. Lakewood Church. Or you can catch his TV show. Here's a prime example of someone who tries to, tries to share the gospel. We'll put that in quotes. But as a man pleaser versus a God pleaser by keeping out the offensive parts. I tell you this because you need to see examples of this. You need to see how this is playing out in, in, in real life here. 
I have uh, some quotes uh, going back to a 2005 interview. I haven't heard that anything's changed uh, where, that Osteen did with CNN anchor Paula Zahn, where he admits his distaste for preaching on subjects like sin and its consequences. Paula Zahn says to him, quote, but critics say it's all just cotton candy Christianity, tasty but insubstantial. There's no fire and brimstone at Lakewood. No talk of sinners, nor, nor Satan, nor talk of politics, abortion, gay marriage. Joel Osteen responds... Oh, it's hard not to do this without the accent. I don't know if I want to go there, you know? I mean, this is verbatim. I just, you know, I'm for the, I don't even know where to go. I haven't really addressed it much. When asked by reporter Christy Watts of the 700 Club about why he doesn't preach on things like sin, the devil, and hell, he responded, well, some people preach about hell like you're, you're already going there. And, and to me, the gospel means good news. Well, I, I'd rather say God is a God of mercy. So I think the people already know what they're doing wrong. And, well, I certainly believe in hell. But to me, when I see thousands of people before me, it just doesn't come out of me to say, you guys are terrible and you're going to hell. I'd rather say that God is a God of mercy. You've got to live an obedient life. But for every mistake you've made, there's mercy there. And I believe we can do better. End quote. I I say this seriously. Seriously. This is a tragedy. (laughs) I guess a question we might want to ask is, 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 why would someone want to please man over God? In how they share the gospel. Well maybe we could go back and ask Joel Osteen that question as well. The man with a net worth of 40 million dollars. Or Benny Hinn 42 million dollars. Or Joyce Meyer 25 million dollars. Or Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland an astounding 760 million dollars. And if it's not about the money. I would imagine it's about the accolades of men. The accolades of men. More on this in a moment. So we know the gospel is a tough proposition for many. It will divide. It is the narrow path of which few will find versus the wide path of which many will go down. It will sound like foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18, but God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, verse 21. What does Paul say in Galatians 1 and verse 10? For I am now seeking the favor of men. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And something else that needs to be said is that if one is preaching, teaching, or sharing a gospel that is contrary to the true gospel, to be pleasing to men, not God, Paul says in verse 9, right before that in Galatians 1.9, he is to be accursed. That's an anathema. It means separated from Christ. It means damnation and hell and the lake of fire. That is serious. That's why I say the stuff of Joel Osteen. It's serious. So serious. Friends, we all have to ask ourselves, 
about this question of are we trying to please men or are we wanting to please God? Thirdly, sharing the gospel can never come from dot, dot, dot. We're going to see what. Sharing the gospel can never come from, we're actually going to go back to verse 3 for a moment. Sharing the gospel can never come from, Paul says, for, this is 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Paul was not allowing for error to come into his understanding of doctrine, most notably because Paul was receiving direct revelation from God And as we already learned, the Holy Spirit was communicating directly with Paul. Jesus himself appeared to and talked to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul tells us in Galatians 1, after that passage I just read, verses 11 to 12, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so how is it that we must be careful, friends, so that our gospel message is without error? And I would suggest to you that there's, there's three things to primarily be aware of here. One, what is the basic gospel that the Lord says will bring someone to faith? Oh, it's time to plug our evangelism class again, which we started last Sunday and will continue tonight. If you missed last Sunday, no worries. Come on tonight. 5 to 6.30, this is exactly the kind of thing we're teaching and learning and talking about. But what is the gospel? Well, it typically centers on someone's understanding of doctrine as related to four uh, key areas. Again, come hear about it from our class this evening where you will, you will learn these areas, you'll, you'll learn the scriptures and even be encouraged to memorize the pertinent scriptures. But the four areas are God, man, Jesus, and faith. And you need to know something about God as creator, his holiness, his requirement then of perfect obedience. And then you do need to understand something about yourself and and people in general that we're all sinners who have broken God's law. And of course, there are consequences for our sin, death and hell, and yes, the lake of fire, and, and, and that our good works will not save us. And then you need to know some things about Christ. Jesus and and the fact that he is God who became a sinless man and that because of this he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins my sins and of course he didn't stay dead but he rose from the grave victorious and is alive today and because of this he can give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And then lastly you need to know that you must repent of your sins and trust in these truths by faith, asking God for forgiveness and, and turning away from all that dishonors him. And you need to turn to Christ. That's what repentance is all about, turning away and turning to and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And then secondly, in watching for error, we want to make sure that we don't add anything to the gospel that God doesn't require in the gospel. You need to You need to, for instance, repent and believe and give all your money to the church. No, I I, I don't think that's in there. Um, Sometimes, friends, your error could be adding doctrinal issues that don't have as their priority salvation. A good example might be end times events. There are plenty of good and godly people who take different views on the end times. 
So you can't you can't tell someone they need to believe in the gospel and then also they need to believe in your view on the end times events. Or else you can't be saved. Some people get hung up on Bible translations. We had to read a book in seminary called the King James Only Controversy. That's a big one. And on the far end of that that spectrum, the far end are King James Only advocates that would say, if you were not saved from the gospel in the King James authorized version, you are not saved. I'm not kidding you. Thirdly, we also cannot omit pertinent gospel truths that can also have a detrimental damning effect on somebody. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that we save people, right? We, we know we don't. We can't. We are to bring the gospel to them. God will then use that gospel message to save them. So I'm not saying that we have some kind of responsibility to save them. We have a responsibility to be faithful to the true gospel message. Amen? Okay. I, well, here, omitting truths. I, I pulled this out. I got this file, gospel tracts in my file. And over the years, I've pulled out these different gospel tracts, and I'll, you know, they get sent to me or whatever, and I'll read it. And basically, I put them into some different categories and different camps. This one I'm going to read you is in the lowest of the bottom of the barrel camps in terms of a gospel message that is just flat out not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Uh, I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, read this to you real quick. It's real short. And, uh, I want you to listen, and I want you to see what you can pick out in terms of what, what is missing. All right? It says, hi! Exclamation mark. Since I may never see you again, would you take a minute to read this? Okay, let's read. We flip it over. I'm a follower of Jesus. I wasn't always, but I discovered that he gave up his life so I could be right with God. My new life in Jesus is so awesome. I want to share it with everyone. You also can have this new life. If your life is not what you want it to be, ask Jesus into your heart. You will never be the same. He gives you love, power, peace, and joy that never ends. And it ends with a verse. The verse is from 1 John 5, 11 and 12, NIV. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Just, just be thinking about it there. What, what, what might be missing there? What's missing from this gospel message? Why, it seems that it, it, you know, he says, is your life not what we want it to be, what you want it to be? Why, why is it that we need to ask Jesus in our heart? These would be some of the questions. What, 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 yeah, sin. Sin, right? You need to ask Jesus in your heart because of, there's a sin problem. So, in a nutshell, what's missing is sin and its consequences. Yes, death, hell, lake of fire. And, 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 and with our biggest need to be forgiven of that sin so that we could avoid those consequences in favor of God's blessings. Instead, what this, uh, this gospel tract here promises us is really much more along the lines of Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. Let's move on to the next thing that sharing the gospel can never come from. Impurity uncleanness or filth in a natural or a physical sense moral uncleanness lewdness even incontinence which is uh means to uh, you're unable to restrain sexual appetites 
It certainly has sexual connotations that the gospel would not be used for sexual motives. Then he says, or by way of deceit. Deceit literally means bait. It can refer to a trap or a fish hook. That just sounds bad. I'm out there catching my fish and, and I'm, I'm trapping them. I'm deceiving them. Yes, I am. And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Tying up my flies. So, man, it's just perfect. And the fish is never going to figure it out. It's going in my creel. Also, something fraudulent. Paul and company are certainly not deceiving anymore in a way, in any way, with their exhortations. Paul and, 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 and the guys didn't resort on, on magic tricks or, uh, you know, anything like that to try and win converts. They were just honest, straightforward men as they shared God's message. As Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And then in verse 4, he says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Then pressing on with verse 5 in our text, with what the gospel can never come from, Paul says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, as you know. Because apparently it was obvious that Paul and the gang didn't try to win them over by just offering them flattering speech. And so what is meant by flattering speech? Well, sometimes a person will use flattery, all, all, all kinds of flattery, you know, speaking nice of someone or well of someone to win them over. And when people say flattering things about us, well, we generally like that. And when they do, we're kind of more apt to listen to them and kind of, you know, endears them to us uh, a, a bit. And, uh, and, and even maybe to their beliefs. When they tell us, even if those beliefs might be in error. And it's not that it's wrong to compliment somebody. Or to tell them nice things or that you like them in, in any way. Unless the motivation is to get something from them. It's all about the motivation, right? It's all about the heart. In this case, to get them to believe something that they want them to believe. Paul may have had in mind Psalm 12 and verse 3 where it says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Furthermore, the gospel may not be given, look at the next part of verse 5, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. This can be greed in relation to any of these false motives, be they power, control, impurity, and of course money. And, and, and the, the gospel would be used to make a buck. But even worse, the word for pretext is all about actually covering up one's true intent. So, so it is deceitful as well. It's greed and with deceit. Paul then gives another no-no in verse 6 by rephrasing it as a, or phrasing it as a question. Look at verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Oh, now this is interesting. Because Paul tells us something of the nature of the glory that he and the others might have sought by telling them that as apostles of Christ, they could have asserted their, uh, they could have um, uh, uh, put forward, asserted, excuse me, their authority. How is that? Because as apostles, they were Christ's specially chosen men who were given divine authority in bringing the gospel message to the people, to the world. This authority also showed up even in the way some were allowed to perform miracles and signs and wonders, right? Now, sometimes people will assert authority 
for good and right reasons, as they should. A police officer needs to enforce the law for the good of the public. A, a coach needs to, needs to uh, best lead their team with authority. There's a military chain of command which shows authority uh, so that they can be, be good, right, and proper in their function. Even a husband, as he lovingly leads his family, and of course, a leader in the church who seeks to love and care for the flock of God, which Jesus purchased with his own blood. There are good and right ways to exert authority. But there are also times where we know authority can be abused, right? I mean, the same husband can turn into a, a dictator of sorts and abuse his authority. Politicians <laughs> seem to abuse their authority quite often. Bosses can be demanding, even, even heavy-handed in a sinful way towards employees. And, and yes, people in the church. People in the church can assume a certain religious authority and then kind of lord it over others. You know, maybe, maybe there's somebody who is kind of puffed up with all of their doctrinal knowledge and they just kind of like to make people feel a little, little below them, just a little bit smaller than them, that they're not as smart. They like to have people kind of looking up to them and putting them on that pedestal. Well, Paul and company were clearly not seeking the accolades of men. In fact, there was a time when Paul actually had to defend his apostleship, his, his, his apostolic authority to the Corinthian church, but he didn't want to. He just kind of, you know, was thinking, eh, this is not where I want to go with this because he knew how it could come off. Extremely prideful, right? So he was very careful when he, when he told them in 2 Corinthians about being caught up to heaven, the third heaven, and how he heard inexpressible words which man is not permitted to speak. That's in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 4. But he was quick to give glory to God. Glory to God. And by not boasting about these visions and revelations, but rather even boasting about what? His weaknesses. His weaknesses. So in this case here with, with Paul and Silas and Timothy... And the Thessalonians, even though they could have asserted their apostolic authority in a more heavy-handed way, they did not do so because they wanted all the glory to go where? To God. To God. Beloved, we, we need to be careful, right? We need to be careful that we never grow puffed up in any of our knowledge or pride in the gospel, that we would never lord the gospel over someone in a way that ever seeks to bring glory to ourselves never ever ever that's all we have time for we will have to get to what what's coming next is the positive ways the positive ways of sharing the gospel i'm sorry we kind of have to stop here it's always good to get to the positive but I, I just felt like we needed to spend enough time with, uh, with considering the truths that we, that we considered. But yes, we'll, we'll see some of the positive ways that the gospel uh, should, uh, should be shared. Let's, um, let's just remember these truths from today. Sharing the gospel requires what? Boldness. Boldness. Sharing the gospel requires you to please God rather than men, rather than people. And thirdly, sharing the gospel can never come from error, impurity, deceit, flattering speech, greed, glory from men, 
or with any sort of heavy-handed authority. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for, for these just incredible truths. I, I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us as we consider, Lord, how you would have us share our faith, share the gospel. And for some, that's, that's going to be you know, teaching others in a class. For some, it's going to be uh, you know, in that one-on-one sense. For some, it's going to be going out with the evangelism group, getting on the box. For some, it's going to be just a, a quieter, quieter conversation with the neighbors or, or over a, a cup of coffee and, and developing a relationship. And Lord, just praying for that gospel opportunity. Father, we pray too for anyone here that has yet to put their faith and their hope and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would do so even right now, that they have, they have heard the gospel truth. Lord, they are sinners who need a Savior and the Savior of course is Jesus and that he died on the cross for their sins that he was buried and three days later resurrected conquering death and conquering sin and Satan and hell and father that by putting their faith in him they can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins good for all eternity we pray all of this in your son Jesus's name and we all said amen scripture quotations taken from the new American standard bible copyright by the Lockman foundation